0: Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I hope that you're well. I hope that life is treating you kind. I always say this, but then I do mean it genuinely. I hope that life is treating you kind because, you know, life is a bit of a roller coaster. And sometimes we don't have people tell us that they hope life is treating us kind. So I really do hope that life is taking you on a nice little adventure right now that is leading you to somewhere good. Um, It's been really interesting the last week to be watching uh the US Congress testimony with TikTok that's i think has come to an end but i'm not entirely sure i'm not following it that closely um but if you know anything about uh some of the history between uh the US government and TikTok the company uh or the company that runs TikTok ByteDance you would know there's been um a little bit of um Tension for some time there. Um, And that spans uh, or stems rather from a long geopolitical history that um, exists between the Western world and uh, China and other countries that are, you know, not within the Western world but are big global players such as Russia. And I think this um, uh, continuing tension has now really come into the tech space. and we're seeing that currently uh, quite significantly with with this uh, Congress testimony uh, that's happening with the CEO of TikTok who is Shu Zi Chu and um, you know all the things that are coming up around data privacy and whether or not uh, TikTok is, collecting any kind of information and data for the Chinese government, uh, which breaches you know, protections and privacies. I think one thing that's come up quite a lot is around biometric data and how that is being used or could potentially be being used by the Chinese government. So from my understanding, uh, this Congress uh, situation is really about TikTok explaining its stance on protection of privacy and data, and um, also its involvement with the Chinese government. Uh, I think, you know, especially given that uh, TikTok has this timeline that it became really popular within the COVID pandemic, it's, you know, just really interesting as well to see how the Chinese government was handling um, information um, or distribution of information around COVID within China itself. Um, during the pandemic, given that, you know, the pandemic was traced back to have uh, started from China. So I think all these things are playing um, into this situation at the moment as well. But, you know, generally, we know that um, there is a kind of Cold War uh, between the Western world and um, these countries, non-Western countries that are Um, considerably advanced in certain capacities to challenge uh, some of the Western dominance. And so um, it's been interesting. And I think it will continue to be interesting. We know that, um, for instance, uh, I think last week as well, TikTok, uh, the UK government uh, banned TikTok on electronic uh, devices, UK government electronic devices. And that's a move that's kind of been happening um, in many different places, I think it's also um, a standard for a few states in the U.S. at the moment that they do not allow um, government electronic devices to have TikTok installed. I think that it also came up with some university campuses around students not being able to download TikTok on um, university Wi-Fi systems, etc. So it's this ongoing thing. And um, as I started to think about it, I thought a little bit more about uh, what that means in terms of implications for non-Western applications becoming uh, something of a mass product or something that um, can go global. Uh, and, And, you know, it's a really interesting thing to be thinking about because a lot of the social media applications that we use that are um, that have become so ubiquitous that have become so comfortable for most of us our Western applications. Um, it's very rare that you would find an application that has globally uh, or gone globally successful that is not from you know the Western world and I think in particular in particular the United States. And so, you know, it's it's this interesting point where we have to think about, well, of course, there is something about China as a, a power and a player in global politics and global geopolitics that makes TikTok particularly, um, you know, the perception of TikTok to be particularly colored from the Western world as, you know, this is a tool of some sort of dominance or a challenge to Western ideals like democracy and freedoms and liberties that the Western world holds very dearly. Um, But at the same time, it begs the question that uh, would a non-Western application ever become as popular, ever ever become uh, as accepted, you know, as as one that is created, headquartered, owned by someone within that space. And, you know, this is not to say that um, there hasn't been issues as well for other companies. I think Meta um, similarly has been brought uh, to uh, congressional um, public debates and things like that uh, around as well its own uh, privacy and data protection uh, issues and, and things like that. So this is not something that's specifically only happening to TikTok. Um, but obviously there's an undertone to it that is a little bit different, which is because this is something that's coming out of another ideological space and is seen as not, um as as not upholding the values and standards and ideals of the Western world. So yeah, I, I've I' started looking at things that, uh, would help me situate this conversation a little bit more and, um, you know, trying to find applications that actually do challenge the uh, Western dominance uh, of of where applications are owned and centered and run from. And, you know, there's a few examples of applications that, you know, we, we use or might use that do buck that trend. And one of those is Telegram. Um, and, um, Telegram was launched in 2013 by two Russian brothers, Nikolai and Pavel Durov or Dukov. I cannot read my own writing at this point in time. Uh, but you would have to check that up on online. Um, I just it wrote my little notes and now I can't read my own handwriting. um. But yeah, it was launched in twenty thirteen, and um, you know it, it's it's one of those applications that's done really well. It has, uh, according to Telegram itself, seven hundred million monthly active users, uh, and it became one of the five most downloaded apps globally in two thousand and twenty two, uh, and so I think that's that's you know, quite a significant shift um, for Telegram or quite a significant audience for Telegram, I'd say. Um, and, you know, I think my first experience with Telegram was many years ago. Um, I'd say 20... 20 oh, why do I keep saying 2017 and 2022 I need to abbreviate this to 2017. But yes, um, my first experience with uh, Telegram was in 2017. And um, I remember at that time I was working um, on content and information that you know uh, needed secure a, a secure platform for you know encryptions and um, privacy and protection. And I think at, at the time the collective I was with, you know, WhatsApp was not an option because again of all these things to do with. Um, uh, data breaches and, you know, ownership across so many different spaces. I mean, you know, WhatsApp is owned by Meta, which owns Facebook and owns Instagram. And so we use Telegram quite a lot. But then I then started to see people take up Telegram a lot in the ensuing years because, um, you know, government shutdowns became quite a thing in, in a few countries, you know, where governments feel a threat from... Uh, political activists, and then, you know, shut down the internet so that people cannot actually organize and and share information and, and, you know, mobilize. And so, uh, you know, one of the things about uh, Telegram is it, you know, a lot of people started using it as an alternative. You could um, access it. You could download the uh, VPN and, you know, access Telegram that way. It was just somewhat... um, it was more um, accessible, you know, when when things like gov- when shutdowns, internet shutdowns, I don't know if I just call them government shutdowns, but I meant internet shutdowns. Uh, when internet shutdowns were happening, it's, you know, Telegram was this viable option for people to engage with each other. Um, I think one of the things it also had was, you know, secret chats and self-destructing uh, messages, which now we also see in, in WhatsApp, um, where you can uh, have a a timed message that disappears. Uh, another platform that that's also not West non Western that you might know about is Viber. Uh, and Viber is a free video and voice calling platform. It was founded, uh, I think, in two thousand and ten in Israel, and you know it's it does fairly well. I think from my reading and my research, it is most popular in Eastern Europe, Myanmar, and the Philippines. I'm not so sure why Myanmar in particular, but then, I, you know, Myanmar also has a quite um, a volatile political situation. And um, uh, I think social media and social media platforms tend to be constricted there. So I'm not sure what Viber might be able to bypass or offer but, you know, from my reading, Myanmar came up as a place where that is a particularly popular um, application. I know that as well, Viber is a very good um, application in contexts where, for instance, um, you, you want to call internationally and some countries make it really difficult to have things like international call minutes, and so you would... Uh, in a normal circumstance, have to use a lot of um, call minutes. Um, and, I, and what I mean is, you know, some, some a lot of countries have these packages where, you know, if you're on a subscription for a mobile company, you can have international call minutes as part of that or you can purchase them as an add-on. And they're not as expensive as if you were uh, calling just without international call minutes it will cost you an arm and a leg to to make those calls and so i think in contexts where those kinds of packages don't exist uh viber offers a very good option because it you can buy viber call minutes and then use those to call internationally and it's significantly cheaper than you know, trying to call directly, or you know, you know, some sometimes you just can't call out. So I don't know if that's part of it's a law or it's um interest um in these places. I can't I can't say I know enough about why it's popular in Eastern Europe in particular. But you know, those are two that you may have heard of that are not um uh, Western in in you know they're not Western owned um. I think uh, Telegram is actually headquartered in Dubai, and so, you know, that's just, it's it's a very different, uh, it's a little bit of a difference in, 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 in outlook, but they don't, you know, they don't make as much noise, or they don't get as much attention, because I suppose they're not as big, and they're not as threatening. Um, you know, Telegram being Russian-owned could sound a few alarm bells, but I don't I don't know. I haven't really seen anything about, about you know, the tracking or the radar that the Western world might have on Telegram. I think Telegram is quite well uh, received, actually, because it, it has um, more advanced security features than WhatsApp itself. But then once we go a little bit more uh, insular, I'd say, um, or out of more global dynamics, you find some some applications that do really well in contexts that are not global but very much regional or uh, national, depending on population sizes in a specific country. So one of those with, is obviously WeChat. and um, WeChat is Chinese. It's uh, I think it's got over a billion users. Um, and it's kind of the, chi- well, it's, it's touted as the Chinese WhatsApp. And so, it, you know, it offers many of the similar features or um, uses and gratifications that people make with WhatsApp, which is to connect to people, um, to share information, etc. But it also has these other features like WeChat Pay and WeChat Share, No WeChat store, I mean, and so you know it has all these different things that allows you to pay for things through it and purchase things through it, Um, and so I think it you know it just it becomes a bit of a one stop shop, and because China has such an extensive population, you know it it can have its own applications without having to engage at all with the Western world, um, because. There is enough of a market and a population to make um, local applications go massive, uh, and I think another one is Sina Weibo, which um, it's a it's a microblogging platform. Uh, it's a bit like Twitter. It has you know from my reading over five hundred million users, um, and then there's other ones like Kuai Shu, another Chinese application. And then you have a, a, a few from Russia. Uh, I think the Russia has its own kind of Facebook, which is uh, called V and it has over five hundred million users. There's also um, Klasniki or OKRU, another Russian um, application with over two hundred million users. And again, Russia has you know quite sizable population of over hundred and forty million. And then, you know, you find others like Kakao Talk. You know, I can't read my own handwriting today for some reason. I believe it's Kakao Talk or Taki. I can't read what I wrote, but it's a Korean chat app. Um, And then Line, which is a messaging app commonly used in Thailand, Indonesia, Taiwan, Japan. Uh, You know, there's a whole host of different ones that start to show up. Um, and I think that um, the thing that one starts to see about these applications and the ones that do particularly well, is how, you know, once you get a little bit further afield from nationality, so or, or countries with big populations, Russia, China, like I've just um, gone through, you start to also realize that there is a way that these applications, Uh, find communities that are also large enough to support or sustain them, even if they do not become particularly um, important in the Western world. So I'll give you an example. I, I haven't read much about it, but it's called Taringa and it is owned by an Argentine company. And it's I think it touts itself as an online community of Spanish speakers in Spain and Latin America. And it's a kind of Spanish alternative to Facebook. I do not know how it works exactly, but I think that you know that again. This what is its unique selling point? It's probably that that it is um, about building community within a specific cultural, sociolinguistic uh, group of people. Uh, you know, Spain, Latin America, the 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 importance of the Spanish language in those areas, but I think it's also the culture. So there is a specific, um, Spanish culture that would probably, uh, bring people to a space like that because there's similarity and there's overlap, there's difference. I I think many people would agree that, you know, Spain and uh, Latin America have very different dynamics and have very different, um, um, Their culture is the same, but then there's different adaptations of it. And so there is difference in in that, but then there is also some sort of community and um, uh, familiarity. And so that's an important thing that makes, I think, non-Western applications particularly um, successful. Um, I think another one that I came across is Skyrock, which is a network for French speakers. I think it's based in France. Um, but then I'm not sure if it's targeting just French speakers within the French, uh, you know, French Western world, which would be France, Brussels, uh, Brussels Belgium, and um, Canada, I think, although Canadian French is quite different to, I think, uh, Mainstream French, but I'm not sure if it also then um, is popular among France's former colonies because you know French is such a big language in those former colonies, and that is another market or another audience that might feel a kind of familiarity with an application like that because again it's speaking to them in a language, um, and a culture. I wouldn't say so much. It's it's a, it's a similar kind of thing where. I wouldn't say French colonies feel as a specific kind of um, Frenchness in the in the in the you know, normative idea of what Frenchness is. but every every colony has adaptations of, you know its colonial influence. Um, I think uh, British colonies, Anglophone countries, again, you know, might not perform. Britishness or Englishness in the way that it is performed in the UK and there's no one there's no one standard way that uh, Britishness or Englishness is performed however there are things that I think every colony adopts from its colonial um influencer and so I I I think maybe that would that would be a case for um former french colonies who knows I don't know enough about skyrock to make any assessments of it. And then, you know, you come across other things like Badoo, which is a dating app. And f- I, I from my reading, it seems to be um, particularly popular with countries from the romantic languages. So uh, the romantic languages would be Italian, Spanish and French. Now, I don't know what it particularly offers in that regard that makes people from those spaces uh, enjoy it or take it up or, or use it more than other spaces. But again, there is something about familiarity, community, and um, entering a space where you feel like you will meet people who are like yourself that might make you feel more comfortable to go there. So I suppose with Badu if you are... Um, specifically looking for a sort of dating partner or a partner life partner. You might then say I will go on to Badu because that is where I'm likely to find more people like myself than you know if I go on another app where there's all kinds of other people there. Um I think and I saw something about Minli, which is um an Egyptian application. I'm not sure how far it's gone or come along because in 2021 it raised 3.6 million us dollars for seed funding and i think the the pitch it was working with was um, it would allow stars celebrities across mena which is the middle east and north africa to create authentic personalized connections with fans now again that speaks to a huge region of people because the mena region is massive um If you think of just Egypt itself, it has over 100 million people as a population. But then, you know, if you look at the whole Middle East and the North African region, that's a massive market. And again, it's culture. It goes back to something that feels um, familiar and connects people in a very um, culturally oriented way um, because... Uh, within the Mena region the Arabic culture is is the dominant culture and again it's not performed the same way everywhere you know I think you'd find Egyptians who are Arabic um, and uh, I'm trying to think of another place uh, Lebanon you know they would have completely different ways of doing certain things, but there is a familiarity um, within the Arabic culture and I would say as well the Muslim culture. And so all those things make people feel a kind of connection to people and, and that's probably why those applications have some sort of following and some sort of um, engagement and interest. And so, you know, it, it begs this question, what makes a non-Western app successful you know um we've kind of seen the ones that are a little bit more mainstream and you see the ones that are a little bit less they're more about a community and a communal approach and you know we have examples i think uh, on the african continent i i couldn't come up with as many but i think one of the ones that really did well for a long time not for a long time for a while was mixit now if you're old enough to remember Mixit, I think Mixit had its 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 heyday about 10 years ago when it was on about 7 7 almost 7.5 million active users uh where over 6 million of those were South Africans and that's because you know uh, Mixit had been established in South Africa um and, you know, it, it, it had its, its time, you know, it, it, it got young people particularly engaged and it, it never became massive. It, it closed in 2015. But for the time it existed, I mean, I think people knew that there was something called Mixit. I knew it was the, that it existed. I never used it. And I think to have had the market share that it had at that time, especially because Facebook was also so popular at that time, um, and Twitter as well, was was a decent run. And I've come across other apps, um, Nigerian apps, that I'm not sure have gotten to the point that they are, you know, attempting to get to. But then, you know, they're doing something. Ayoba, which is a, a, an instant messaging app, which is backed by MTN the telecoms company um, from my reading it has about 10 million active users and it allows you to listen to music while chatting there is also Mpesa which has um, a long history in Kenya of you know being a very important cash app um, it has allowed for a lot of um, interactions or transactions uh, to happen through mobile money. I mean, it was, you know, I think 10 years ago or so, it was also this massive model for how uh, mobile money could become this really big thing in, on the African continent. And so it feels like, you know, for a lot of these applications that are on the continent, well, not a lot of them, I'm not, I'm speaking from a very limited um, resource pool. Uh, but then, you know, there's something about having to differentiate oneself from uh, the Western applications that most of us are using. Uh, and how does one do that? Well, they have to do it by being very contextual. They have to find an, a problem within the context and try to fix that problem versus, I think, uh, trying to mimic what uh, applications already exist out there. Uh, and so I, th- I think that's quite interesting, especially when you look at these applications that are doing quite well um, outside of uh, the Western context. and it, it speaks to population sizes, population sizes, it speaks to cultural um, artifacts that bind people to each other or bring people together. And so I, as I think about that, I, I wonder what a, a highly successful, um, application on the continent could look like and firstly would it have to have a following outside of the continent well I think you know there's such a big diaspora such a big African diaspora that it, it inherently any application that is de- developed for Africans will reach uh, the western world because there is such a large population of Africans within the western world and beyond. Uh, but then I'm trying to think about something that could actually speak to different parts of the continent and get um, continental engagement and what that could look like. So, in a certain way, I think about, you know, when I think about romantic languages, and I talked about this with the Badu example, I've always been curious to group. African languages in a similar way to the way that romantic languages are grouped. Now, you know, if you have heard people speak Italian, French, and Spanish, you will know that it is a family of languages that, um, sound somewhat similar to each other. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. I'm just thinking of four, cuatro. I'm not sure if cuatro is Spanish. I I think it's Spanish. Quatre is French, and I'm trying to think what it would be in Italian or Spanish. I can't remember which language I just, I can't remember which language Quattro is. But then you kind of find those kinds of words that are very similar across different language groups. And so people from different language groups can understand each other. And it's very similar with Bantu languages, um, which are, you know they include Zulu, Kosa, Shona, Swahili, all these kinds of languages. Where if someone speaks to you in one of those languages, you will pick kind of pick up um, what they're saying. And my first example, uh, well, I I know this because I'm from Southern Africa, and so you have Nebele and Shona, and you know different languages: Zulu, Xhosa, That they kind of all sound somewhat similar to each other um, in some ways, not always. But then I remember being in Kenya once and like listening to people talking. And I remember they were having this conversation and the one person asked the other person, Utafika nini, which means when are you arriving? And I was like, I picked up what you said, that I don't speak Swahili. And then they were like, how did you pick that up? And I said, well, in Shona, you would say Unoshikarini, and um, in Develo you'd say Uzofiganini. So I was like, yeah, it's a it's a language, it's a group of languages, it's Bantu languages. And so I'd be very interested if ever anyone tried to venture into developing a Bantu language app, um, which would perhaps help people understand each other's languages more or engage. Um, you know, Swahili, I think, as, as a language itself is probably the most, um, uh, I guess, spoken language that is not um, English or French on the continent that has enough people in different countries that speak it. Tanzanians, Kenyans, some people in the Congo and other parts of of Africa speak Swahili. And, you know, the Swahili also changes somewhat with different countries. Uh, But then, at the same time, that would be an interesting place for an application to come in because that's a ready kind of market and a cultural um, group that's similar to the others that I've spoken about that could, you know, have something going on. Uh, but then I, I kind of think beyond that, I can't quite think what that would look like. I think Nigeria is the country with the numbers, uh, West Africa is. The the, the region with, I think, the numbers as well. So, you know, something that was West African-oriented might also do really well. Um, I try to think of something in Southern Africa that could do as well. Um, and I kind of struggle. And I think that's also because Southern Africa has smaller population sizes in general. Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, those are small countries, but very similarly similar culturally, I wonder what that would look like if something came out of those kinds of countries. South Africa is the the country in the region with, you know, big numbers and big technology. So, you know, the next big thing might come out of South Africa. But I think it would have to be something that's especially culturally enticing, you know, something that brings people together in a way that other applications do not provide. And for now, I think a lot of people find a lot of solace and comfort in the the applications that exist. Um, you know, you can do a whole lot with spaces like WhatsApp, um, Facebook, and all of those. Um, and, you know, what would a, you know, a financially oriented application look like, given that I think most countries now also have a lot of their own um cash apps that are similar uh, to what Kenya has, uh, you know, different iterations of people being able to transact online, uh, not online, but like with through technology. So yeah, it's it's a little point of pondering and no answers offered as usual, just questions. Uh, but then, yeah, it's it's interesting to look at all these applications and think through where they come from, where they're going and, you know what a non-Western app would look like to be viable, you know, and who would it be viable to? So we'll see what happens with um, uh, the issues to do with TikTok in the US and the Western world. We'll keep watching that. But, you know, for now, I leave you with that food for thought and wish you a good week.